And once again, good morning. Can I have you guys uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8? And if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 8 where we have been studying this confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. To call it high intensity would be to really kind of soften it. It was more like a thermal nuclear confrontation uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees regarding spiritual truth. Jesus, who is the truth, came into the world to declare God's truth, whereas the Pharisees had embraced Satan's lies. And as we've been saying, this led to Jesus going four rounds with these religious leaders. We've been looking at these four rounds. We find ourselves this morning in round three, and I'd like to pick it up in verse 37. And uh, it's right here, guys, where you might say the gloves come off, okay? Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. When Jesus said to these Pharisees, my word has no place in you, the Greek word means to advance, to make progress, to go forward. In other words, the Pharisees heard Jesus' words. They followed him around listening most of the time to find something they could use against him. But they heard Jesus' words, and yet they willfully rejected his teaching, and hence his words never progressed from their heads to their hearts. And it's only when the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is embraced in the heart that it brings forth the fruit of salvation. Otherwise, it just remains in the head as knowledge. So a lot of folks know a lot about the Bible. In fact, they know a lot of right things about Jesus. But they've never accepted him into their heart, and therefore they have never experienced regeneration, salvation. In that regard, these folks, Pharisees and others that we've been talking about, were just like the ones in Jesus' parable of the sower. You remember what Jesus said, a sower went forth to sow seed. Some of the seed fell by uh, on the wayside soil. This would be the walkway, the dirt pathway that was so hardened through constant foot traffic, it was like concrete. And, uh, of course, he talked about the seed falling on different other soils. But I want to focus on that one because when you can read this in Mark 4, verses 3 through 15. And when the disciples later on asked him, Lord, what about this parable? Explain it to us. He said the seed that fell on the wayside is the, wayside is the, is the word because the seed is the word. He said, uh, when the word of God is sown, we go out and evangelize. Some of the hearts it falls on are very hard. And the seed just kind of lays there. Eventually, it's snatched away by the devil. We liken the bird snatching seed off of this very hard pathway. Look, unbelievers can come to church and hear God's word when it's preached to them, when it's presented to them. But if they don't embrace it as truth in their heart, eventually the devil will snatch it from them. He'll just snatch. That's why Jesus said in Luke 8:18. He said a warning. He said, pay attention how you hear the word when it's presented. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding more understanding will be given to them. But for those who are not listening, I mean, they're hearing, but they're not listening, okay? He said, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. 
With knowledge comes responsibility. And if you come to church and you hear God's word taught, God expects you. He now You have a, an obligation. You have uh, an expectation from the Lord that you are going to do something with it. And if you hear it and then do nothing with it, and the devil finally just snatches it away from your heart, um, that's dangerous because it's leading you down a path now where uh, what you thought you understood about spiritual things, well, the light that was in you is replaced with darkness. And um, that's a bad place to be in because you're no longer receiving any truth. Now, of course, this is one of the main ways you know, what I'm talking about, those who hear the word and embrace it, uh, opposed to those who don't. This is one of the main ways we know the children of God from the children of the devil. Uh, the children of God have God's word securely planted in their heart. It abides there. John talked about this pretty heavy in his first epistle. And in chapter 2, verses 24 and 5, he talked about those who received the word and let it abide in their heart. The Greek word is, is meno. It means to continue, to remain. Those people that receive the word, and it doesn't get just get discarded or cast to the side. They hear it, and they receive it into their hearts. Either they do that because they're in the process of being saved, God's working, or they're saved already. And the reason they receive the word, and they, and they keep it in their hearts, they give it place, is because they believe it is the word of God. And as such, they know it's important. They've made room for it in their heart. In fact, they've built their lives around it like all of us uh, have done as Christians. And again, this is one of the main ways we know the children of God from the children of the devil. The children of God love God's word. And I say love it to the point of obeying it. That's the, what I'm talking about. Whereas unbelievers can hear it, but they don't love it. They don't give it lip service. I gave it lip service before I got saved. I mean, I thought the word, the Bible, that was, you know, that was an important book. I even had a copy on my coffee table for a couple of years. Never read it. Somebody gave it to us for our uh, shower gift when we got married. And I had it right there on my coffee table because good people have a Bible somewhere. I never read the thing. You know, my aunt was better than my aunt. I gave her a copy. She used it to prop up the leg on her coffee table because it was not, you know. But just because you have it in your house or have it in your head, it's not going to do you any good unless you take it into your heart, cherish it, and apply it. That's what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. In verse 38, he said, I speak what I have seen from my father, and you do not, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, by saying this, Jesus was referring to something he had said earlier in this chapter to these same Pharisees in verse 23, when he said, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. A few weeks ago, we said that there are two kingdoms, two kingdoms that all human beings belong to, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. Each kingdom is entered into through birth. Satan's kingdom is entered into through physical birth, and God's kingdom is entered into through spiritual birth, as when a person receives Jesus Christ into their heart as their Savior and they are born again or born from above, as Jesus put it in John 3. These two births become the entry points, not only into these two kingdoms, but also into two families, led by two very different fathers, God the Father and the devil. 
Jesus made reference, reference to this, and again in verse 38, when he said, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. By saying this, Jesus was affirming these two families, that God is a family that he is the Father of, and that the devil has a family that he is the Father of. But not only that, Jesus was telling us that these fathers speak, and their children listen and do or obey each family jesus was saying has its own truth quote unquote god's kingdom is built on his divine truth which is truth and satan's kingdom is built on lies which his children his followers believe to be truth i'll read verse 38 one more time out of the amplified I tell you the things which I have seen and learned at my father's side, and your actions also reflect what you have heard and learned from your father. Jesus in his humanity, we know, grew from infancy to adulthood physically. But he also grew in wisdom and knowledge spiritually. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 tells us he grew in his knowledge and understanding of the word of God. He is the word, but... Uh, being born into this world, he had to learn like we learn. And he grew in his knowledge of his Father in heaven and in the Word of God by spending time in the Word and with his Father. He communed daily with his Father. Mark one thirty five says he, get, he got up every morning before the sun rose to spend time with his Father. Then throughout the day he would stop and close down ministry and go spend time with his Father, sometimes spending all night with his father in communion and prayer. Through this, he really got close to the father. The father was with him. In fact, John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The Greek is eye to eye with, in perfect fellowship and communion with. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for embracing Satan's lies, which they had been deceived by the devil into thinking was God's truth. How did these men, these were scholars, by the way, these were uh, the educated uh, men of Judaism, leaders, okay? How was it that Satan was able to deceive them? Through their pride. Through their pride. Now, I know that with regard to this last statement, some would immediately say, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. The Pharisees' knowledge of spiritual things came from Judaism, right? A system that God gave to them through Moses. So how could Jesus tell them that they learned their knowledge of spiritual things from the devil? How does that work? Folks, that is a very legitimate question. And, un and in fact, that question underpins, underlies much of what's going on here in John 8, whether you realize it or not, okay? Let's look at that question because it really gets to the heart of what Jesus is doing here, okay? And why this is such an important chapter, a chapter we have taken extra time with because as we said last week, yes, devotional topics and devotional messages are wonderful. We talk about God's love and and, and just his grace and so on. And, and devotional messages are very important. 
uh, and, and comforting. But doctrine precedes devotion. You're not going to have true devotion without proper and true doctrine. There's a lot of folks that don't know doctrine and therefore offer God all kinds of things that in the way of worship that are not acceptable to Him. Every year at uh, Easter time in the Philippines, there are people that walk through the streets barefoot. They sometimes walk on broken glass uh, on their knees. Other parts of the world, people do the same. What are they doing? They're suffering as a way of worshiping God. Not realizing that in Isaiah 53, it says Jesus was punished for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace with God was placed upon him. And by his stripes, we are all healed. I don't need to add to his suffering. That's blasphemy. They're sincere in their devotion, but sincerely wrong. Doctrine must precede devotion if devotion is going to be acceptable. Very important, okay? But listen, it's true, Judaism as a religious system did come from God. However, it didn't start on Mount Sinai when God gave his commandments to Moses to get to, to then give to the children of Israel. It really started in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, we have the headwaters for two information streams that have flowed into the world down through the centuries and from which all religious ideologies and many secular ideologies have descended. As I said, they both got their start in the Garden of Eden. One information stream was the Word of God, Judeo, which became the basis for Judeo-Christianity. So in the Garden of Eden, you had God's truth, all right? God's Word, which again became the basis for Judeo-Christianity. That was an information stream that flowed into the world. We are all a part of that information stream as we go into all the world and preach the gospel. But then in the Garden of Eden, you had the devil's lies. The devil's lies. And they became the basis for every other belief system. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go online, our church website, go online, access our topical study, The Battle for Truth. Listen to the first four parts it will open your eyes to what's happening out there, okay? But we are living at a time of great deception because Satan, who is the god of this world, is in control of most of what flows through this fallen world system in the way of spiritual doctrine. We know it is his lies. He has control of the newspapers, the radio, the TV. Uh, he has control of the Internet for the most part. Hollywood, uh, you know, pretty much all the major information streams he has control of and uses them to preach his lies, false doctrine. As we said numerous times already in this series, this is the heart of spiritual warfare, which is a battle at its core for the minds and souls of mankind through Satan's indoctrination. Of course, we want to gain their minds and souls for the kingdom of God using the gospel, God's truth. But Satan's lies are so powerful and so pervasive that Jesus himself said the only thing powerful enough to set people free from Satan's lies is God's truth. Let me read it to you one more time out of John 8, verses 31 and 2. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, 
And the truth, God's truth, will make you free, free from spiritual deception. Now, getting back to how Judaism got started in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, well, they fell from perfection and fellowship with God. But when they sinned, at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they knew for the first time that they were naked. Now, they were naked before that, but it's what the theologians called the age of the dispensation of innocence. Kind of like a couple of uh, kids. You know, you have children, your young children, your moms, and they get together with your kids together for a day, you know, on a Saturday, and the kids are playing in the sand, and they're all dirty. And so, you know, you just make it simple. You just take, you know, you got a little boy, a little girl, a couple years old apiece. You take them in the bathtub. You wash them both together, right? They don't know any different. They're not ashamed. They're naked, but unashamed because they're innocent. They don't know any better. That's how Adam and Eve were, the theologians say, until sin entered into their souls, and then their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked, and with the nakedness brought shame, because God never intended for us to walk around naked in public and not be ashamed. I'm sorry to tell people that today. You know, nakedness is fine in the privacy of your own home when you're getting dressed or something, or with you and your wife or your husband in your own bedroom. That's fine. That's legitimate. That's perfectly good. But God never intended us to go out in public naked and not be ashamed. And so Adam and Eve, their eyes were open. They saw for the first time they were naked. And um, immediately this guilt and shame in their hearts, because they were naked, caused them to want to cover the shame of their nakedness. Let me just say this. As human beings, beings, we can't function in an environment of guilt and shame for too long before we want to alleviate it. And we often do, so, and so we often do the very thing Adam and Eve did. When we sin, we try to cover our sin, our shame, uh, and do away with it, do away with our guilt through the works of our hands. In their case, they sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. Folks, this, whether you realize it or not, was the beginning of religion upon the earth. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And no sooner than we see the beginning of sin upon the earth, we see the beginning of religion. Religion is man's effort to cover his guilt and shame before God through the works of his hands. However, God didn't accept their attempt to cover their nakedness. And so we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that God took a couple of animals from the garden and killed these animals and then covered Adam and Eve with their skins, with the skins of these two animals. Why? Because fig leaves weren't good enough. They didn't do a good enough job to cover them. No, it was to communicate to Adam and Eve and to the whole human race right up front that it was only through a blood sacrifice that our sins could be covered. This became the basis for Judaism, which God said very clearly in many places in the Old Testament. I'll read to you out of Leviticus 17, verse 11, where God said, For the life of the flesh, he's talking about animal sacrifice, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. 
The word atonement in the Hebrew is kapur and means a covering, a covering. For the Jewish people to have fellowship with God, their sins would have to be atoned for. They would have to be covered. The shame of their nakedness before God would have to be covered. They weren't literally naked at this point, but you get the idea. Sin opened their eyes. Sin was in their soul. And for them now to have fellowship with God, their sin would have to be atoned for. Their sin would have to be covered. And guess what? Being good wouldn't do it, whatever that means. Why do you feel you're worthy to approach God? Because I'm a good person. I don't even know what that means. How are you defining that? Being good wouldn't cut it. For the Jews, keeping commandments and offering God rituals and ceremonies wasn't going to do it either. It would take a blood sacrifice. I have given you the animal upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now at this point, some might say, okay, but wait a minute. The Pharisees did believe in animal sacrifices to atone for their sins as God prescribed through the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses. So again, how could Jesus say they'd embrace spiritual doctrine that was a lie from the devil? I don't get that. Aren't they acting the very way God told them to act through the law? Good question. Why did Jesus say that to these men? That they were listening to their father, the devil? and embracing his lies? Because at this point, of course, Jesus coming to earth, but especially now as we're in the last six months of his life before the cross, he's telling these men that he came from the Father to tell the Jewish people that the time for Judaism, the old covenant, had come to be replaced and replaced with a new covenant. The old covenant that God gave to Israel through Moses was never intended to be an eternal covenant. God illustrated that through Moses himself. Turn to Exodus 34. This is what you need to understand about what Jesus is saying to these men when he says they were deceived by Satan. Because Jesus came from the Father to tell the Jewish people that the time had come for Judaism, the old covenant, to be replaced with a new covenant. In verse, excuse me, in Exodus 34, verse 29, we see Moses has just received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Verse 29, now, now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hands, that would be the tablets of the law that contained the Ten Commandments, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, with the Lord. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Moses had been up on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, and while he was in God's presence all that time, something remarkable happened. He absorbed some of God's glory and his face shone. Now the Hebrew verb for shone literally means shot forth beams of light. This is a Hebrew word though 
that is spelled very much like another Hebrew word for horn, horn, which is why the Latin Vulgate mistranslated this verb as having horns. Moses came down from the mount having horns. And why in most of the medieval works of art depicting Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, he is seen wearing horns. No, he wasn't wearing horns. His face was radiating with the glory of God. Now it's interesting, we're told here, Moses didn't realize his face was shining with God's glory when he came down initially. The people knew it, the people could see it, right? Hey guys, there's a lesson there for all of us. Because the same is true with us. The more time we spend in God's presence, listen, the more we will radiate with His glory. We may not realize it, others will know it. You can't spend time in God's presence on a regular basis, loving Him, being in the Word, communing with Him, and not leave His presence and not radiate with His glory. In other words, with His love, His heart, His, His righteousness, His kindness, His mercy, all of that comes from being in God's presence. That, that's part of the beauty and blessing of prayer and communion with God. As we spend time with him, we become what? Like him. Like him. So verse 31 of Exodus 34, Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near. And he gave them his commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Why did Moses cover his face with a veil? Well, I think that probably the Jewish people back then that were standing there, and I think a lot of Jews today, believe he did so because the glory was so bright coming from his face that it blinded people. Kind of like looking into the sun. You can't do it for very long. So he covered his face so that people wouldn't be blinded by the light. Okay, I can accept that. If the Bible had nothing more to say on the subject, okay. It's just that many centuries later, Paul the Apostle shows up, who is a, was a rabbi and a scholar, and he tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13, that Moses put a veil over his face, and I'm quoting Paul, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end, hold on to that word, at the end of what was passing away. In other words, Moses covered his face, Paul tells us, because the glory of that first covenant was already fading away. And Moses didn't want the people to see it fading away. Now apparently God had told Moses at one point, because it seems that Moses knew that the glory of the covenant Israel had just received from the Lord, the Mosaic covenant, the law, was temporary and would fade away and be replaced with another covenant someday. And that's why he put the veil on his face even because the glory was already starting to fade, even though it would be another 1,500 years before the glory of the Old Covenant would completely fade away and end. But Moses didn't want the people to see that this covenant that they had just received from God from Mount Sinai was only temporary. And the glory was already starting to fade from his face. The word translated end 
in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13, has two meanings. Purpose and finish. The Greek word has two meanings. Purpose and finish. The veil prevented the people from seeing the finish of the Mosaic Covenant as it faded away, but the veil also prevented them from understanding the purpose behind the fading glory. The law had just been instituted, and the people were not ready to be told that this glorious system was only temporary. The truth that the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of law, was a preparation for a greater covenant, the covenant of grace, was not yet made known to them in Moses' day, but even until Paul's day. In fact, turn to Galatians 3. Again, we wouldn't know, know any of this if Paul didn't tell us. Why Moses put that veil on his face? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw something very important in, in that whole story that we read in Exodus 34. And he talks about it in different places in his writings uh, as we read the New Testament. The first one I'll read to you is Galatians 3. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 19. Paul says, why then was the law given? Now, he, he says the law and the promise. He's talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So if God was going to replace the Old Covenant with a New Covenant, why give the Old Covenant at all? Why, why, why do it at all? Why not just start with the New Covenant? Well, he's answering that question. Why then was the law given, the Old Covenant? Paul said it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Is there a conflict between the old covenant and the new? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could, we could be made right with God by obeying it. If the law could give us salvation, God would have kept it. All it did was point out our sins because we kept breaking God's laws. Verse 22, But the Scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in, in Christ was available to us, we were placed under, the guard, under guard by the law. So before the new covenant came, God used the old covenant to teach us, to actually bring us to Christ. Uh, because there's no way we could keep those laws to be saved. And after getting frustrated so much, uh, you know, we couldn't keep the law, we would cry out, God, is there another way? I can't keep this way to get to heaven. I, I keep breaking these laws. Jesus came, yes, I'm the way, the truth and the life. You want to get to heaven, you come through me. Faith, okay? That's what Paul's talking about. Before the law, uh, before the new covenant came, the law kept us under protective custody. Um, we were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed, the new covenant. Let me put it another way. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now the way of faith has come, which is, again, a reference to the new covenant in Christ. We no longer need the law as our guardian. So they, the old 
covenant served a purpose. It led to the new covenant. That's why we speak of Judeo-Christianity. It's not Judaism or Christianity. It's Judaism which led to the fulfillment which was Christ and Christianity. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. Now here Paul is talking about the Jewish people when they read their own scriptures they don't understand it really 2 Corinthians 3 verse 14 but their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains uplifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ it's not until a Jewish person receives Christ that their eyes are open and they understand now for the first it wasn't until Saul of Tarsus received Christ that all of his training in Judaism really made sense now it, it, his mind lit up with God's truth. And he realized that everything he learned pointed to Christ. And, but he didn't know that as an unsaved Jew. That's what he's talking about. The, the, the Jews have a veil on their eyes when they read their own scriptures. It's only taken away when they receive Christ. Verse 15, But even to this day when, the, when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken Away. In other words, guys, at the time Paul wrote Second Corinthians, when the Jews read their scriptures, which would be our Old Testament, their Tanakh, they under the their understanding of why Moses really put that veil over his face was hidden from them. They still don't get it today. They didn't realize that the glory of the law, the old covenant, was passing glory, and that the law had found its fulfillment. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus, when he came to uh, to institute the new covenant, in Matthew 5, 17, he didn't say, I have come to destroy the old covenant. He said, I have come to fulfill. And again, that's why we talk about Judeo-Christianity. Judaism is the root. Christianity, Christianity is the fruit. They're connected. It's not the old, outdated testament and the new upbeat current testament it's the older testament and the newer testament one leads to the other one author said with regard to the jews blindness he said and i quote the veil over the face of those who live by the old covenant blinds their own eyes to the reality and identity of their messiah jesus christ this is why you can talk by the hour with Jewish people about the way Jesus perfectly fulfilled Old Testament prophecy and they still won't see him as their Messiah. There's a veil over their eyes and because this veil is done away with only in Christ, it is only as they turn to Christ that they are able to see clearly, end quote. Now unfortunately, guys, there is an application to us today in the church. I'm going to spend a lot of time with it because I want to get finished here, but... Um, this kind of thing is all too common in the church today among God's people. We want to put a veil or a mask, I'll put it that way, on ourselves to keep people from seeing that the glory of our relationship with God, well, um, is fading oftentimes because we're not spending time in His presence as we should spend. And so we put on this veil, this mask, this facade, we're all good at it, aren't we? 
Very few times when we're really hurting do we open up and humble ourselves to each other. You know, confess your sins one to another, that you may be healed. Um, that's what the idea behind fellowship, koinonia. I can't bear your burdens. I can't weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice if I don't know you, okay? If I don't know you. And if I'm, if I'm putting on a facade, uh, I don't let people know what I'm going through, I can't get them to pray for me. That's what it's all about, us banding together, bearing each other's burdens. And yet, so, but we all want to give the, the appearance that we're perfect, spiritually speaking. You know? Our families are perfect. Marriage is flawless, you know? I have said this before, I'll say it again. The church parking lot has done more to rehabilitate couples in their relationship than anything else in the church. It's a program uh, series, because husbands and wives could be fighting all the way to church. They park it, they pull in the church parking lot, suddenly uh, the, 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 the skies part, the clouds part, the angels start to, to descend, the rays of glory, and suddenly they walk out of that car, two of the most perfect Christians you ever want to see. <laughs> And don't laugh, we've all done it. <laughs> we've, we've all done it, okay? Well, we, we, we want to put this mask on, this, 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 this face, this, you know, uh, this facade. We don't want people to see our true selves. We don't want to let them know what's really going on. Well, look, getting back to our text in John 8. As we bring it to a close, the time had come for the old covenant under Moses to be replaced with the new covenant under and through Christ. This was something that was not a new revelation. It wasn't like Jesus showed up one day and dropped this bombshell on them that Judaism was coming to an end and Jesus was going to bring in a whole new system, a new covenant. This was not brand new to them. In fact, God had spoken this to them many centuries earlier through the prophet Jeremiah that someday the old covenant would come to an end and be replaced by another one, a new one. Turn to Jeremiah 31. This is important. God let them know a long time before Christ came about this. He said in Jeremiah 31, look at verse 31. The Lord said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them like a husband loves his wife. That was the covenant he made with them from Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. But verse 33, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Here's the problem with the old covenant. External laws written on tablets of stone can only go so far in people obeying God. If you were afraid of consequences, just like in our legal system, if you get a person that's afraid of consequences or breaking the law, they'll be law-abiding. But we have more and more people in our society don't give a rip about consequences. And therefore, laws are meaningless. You, you, you can have books and books loaded with laws, and we do. 
And people just break them because they don't care about consequences. And God understood that. God said, look, external pressure from external laws written on tablets of stone. If people obey, they obey out of fear. They obey because they don't want the consequences. They don't obey out of love necessarily because they love God. So God says in the new covenant, I'm going to change that. When people receive my son, I'll move inside them through my Holy Spirit. I'll give them a new heart. I'll write my laws on their heart, no more on tablets of stone. I'll write them on the fleshly tablets of their heart, and they will obey me out of love and because they desire to obey me. It's called receiving the new nature, right? We've talked about that. Now, guys, this is what I want you to see. This is what Jesus was really confronting. We say it was a thermonuclear uh, confrontation. Oh, you're making Jesus out to be a hothead. No, no, I'm not. There is such a thing as carnal anger and righteous indignation. Jesus Christ never had carnal anger. Anytime he was angry, it was righteous indignation. And you think the Lord is upset when Satan tries to lie and get people to embrace lies uh, that will keep them from going to heaven and send them to hell forever? Yeah, that's righteous indignation. That's why he came against these guys so forcefully. This is the lie of the devil that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of Israel had embraced that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he was not God in human form, and that Judaism, the old covenant, and not Jesus, the new covenant, was the way to approach God and live with him forever in his kingdom. That was the lie that Jesus was coming against so forcefully in John 8. The lie that people could atone for their sins through their religious works. Of course, you were a Jew going to temple, offering sacrifices to God, keeping feast days, new moons, and Sabbaths. Of course, let's bring it to the present. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And as a Roman Catholic, I was taught and I believed that going to church, lighting candles, praying the rosary, and keeping the sacraments would atone for my sins and earn me a place in heaven. I didn't realize it back then because I hadn't read the Bible for myself. Remember the truth will set you free? I didn't realize it back then, but I had embraced the main lie of the devil. That religious works were a way to God. Of course, I realize now that all religions are based on what man does for God. That's the very definition of religion. Do. Do. All religions are based on what man does for God. In fact, the word religion comes from a Latin word which means to bind in the sense of binding someone to an obligation. The dictionary defines obligation as duty which in turn is defined as a thing which a person ought to do, a thing which is right to do. Therefore, religion is an obligation or duty to do certain right things. Which right things depend on each religious group's definition of what's right? Okay, so religion is all about doing the right things to earn heaven. Well, what are the right things? We have to, each group is different. Okay? Each group has their own little, you know, 
some of the holiness church groups, you can't, you know, smoke, dance, drink, wear long hair, guys wear short skirts, girls. I mean, you know, let's keep within, you know, but, but you know, some of these circles, you have to wear girls' skirts down to your ankles. Anything above that's considered short, okay? But it depends on the group what these right, quote-unquote, things are. And if a person is faithful to do what their religion says constitutes good works, then they will earn a place in heaven when they die. Let me just say, and you've heard me say this before, as we bring it to a close, let me just say this. There are really only two religions in the world. Really only two. The religion of human achievement and then the religion of divine accomplishment. Those are the only two. Every religion and religious system in the world apart from Christianity falls under the category of human achievement. This system believes that what a person does for God will earn them, listen, his favor, merit his blessings, and ultimately get them into heaven if their group believes in heaven. Not They don't all believe in heaven. Only Christianity, which of course is not a religion, it's a relationship, we know that, but only Christianity falls into the category of divine accomplishment, what God has done for us. Religion, what I do for God, to earn heaven. Christianity, what God has done for me by giving me eternal life. Again, religion says do. Christianity says done, as in it is finished. As Jesus said from the cross, John 19, verse 30. Religion comes from man and is an expression of his pride. What do I mean? Well, it's his effort to prove he is good enough to work for and earn a place in heaven. In that regard, religion is man-centered and works-oriented. Christianity comes from God and is Christ-centered and grace-oriented. Grace means unmerited favor, undeserved blessing, receiving a gift from God, that's what eternal life is, Receiving a gift from God we didn't earn and do not deserve. And boy, does that pop the religious person's bubble. And that's why the Pharisees would not embrace the new covenant under Christ. They had worked long and hard to do a lot of works they could point to and say, look at how righteous I am. You think, I know Catholics that go to Mass every day. Every day. Do you think that when you tell them you don't need all that? Just receive Christ. You don't need to go to church every day and light candles and pray. It's all, Jesus did it all. Many of them will not part from their Catholicism because they've got too much invested. That's, that's what religious people do. They work and work and they want to pile up their good works to point to them to say, look at how good I am. I deserve heaven. You, you're a loser. I deserve heaven. I go to church every day. Well, Paul felt that way, didn't he? And initially, why he rejected Christianity, but eventually he received Christ. And what did he go on to say in, I think it was Philippians? All that which was once a badge of honor, I now count as dung. Worthless, Right? Quickly, and we're out of time. Never stop me in the past. It's probably not going to stop me now. 
Uh, let me just say this, and we'll. I, how many times have I said we're going to close? All right, uh, we'll get there. I'm, I'm, I'm working. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Might be a train coming. I don't know, but we're we're getting there. Uh, I, I just want you to see quickly because we've already studied John six. You might want to turn there while I'm talking, save a little time. Um, we see how indoctrinated the Jewish people were in this works righteousness religious system called Judaism. We see it in John six pretty clear. When a group of people came to Jesus and wanted to know what works they could do that would please God enough that he would grant them eternal life. Look at verse 28. Then they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, here's what they're asking. We want to get to heaven. We know we have to do stuff, right? Because that's what we, you know, we've always been taught. You have to work and do good things. And so what works do we have to do that we might earn heaven? That was the question. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now understand the Lord's being a little facetious here. A little facetious. Um, he kind of picks up on their lingo. Meets them on their level. Okay, he did this a lot. All right, They come, Lord, Jesus, what, what works must we do to work the work of God and be saved. All right, well, here's the works, quote unquote, you need to do. Just believe. Just believe. All right? He wasn't trying to say faith is a work. He's just saying, look, you're thinking in terms of works? Let me tell you something. Here's what you need to do. Receive me. Believe in me. And you will receive eternal life as a free gift. It's interesting that in John 8, I promise we're closing now. <laughs> In the process of Jesus telling these religious, ultra-religious men, Pharisees, that their religion wouldn't and in fact couldn't save them, what do they do? Instead of dropping to their knees and receiving Christ, repenting of trying to earn heaven and just receive the Savior by faith, they appealed to Abraham. Verse 39, beginning part, they said to him, Abraham is our father. What did that mean? They believed that Father Abraham was going to save them. In fact, they believed it so much the rabbis taught that Father Abraham stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any unbelieving Jew out of the line of those people going in. In other words, you didn't have to believe as long as you were a descendant of Abraham, you were in. Because he stood outside the line of, of those going to hell and he'd pluck out even unbelieving Jews. So they wouldn't go to hell. This is their mindset. And of course, when you couple it with their obedience to their religion, especially in the way of circumcision, that you were assured. You're a descendant of Abraham, you were circumcised, the guy, you're in. Well, Paul picked up on that. And I'll close with this. Fifth closing. Uh, Paul, Paul said in Romans 4, I believe it was, he said that Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. Remember that? That comes out of Genesis 15, verse 6. He goes on to say, how was he justified? By the hearing of faith or by the works of the law? Not by the works of the law. Because he wasn't circumcised until 14 years later in Genesis chapter 17. Proving that 
a religious ritual will not save anyone. The Jews thought circumcision, that'll save us. Today people think water baptism, that'll save us. It's called called baptismal regeneration. Dip a person in water, they are regenerated, they're saved. Paul is saying no. It is not a work of the flesh. Salvation is a total gift of God. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees, you are damning people to hell. He said earlier in Matthew 7, you're like spiritual traffic cops standing outside the uh, narrow way, blocking the entrance through the narrow way and waving people down the broad way that leads to hell. You are false prophets. You are false teachers. You're, you're promoting a false gospel. You have been deceived by the devil. And that's why he was so angry with these men. I'll leave it there. You can read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, which I have in my notes. Be careful that even after you're saved by grace, you don't fall into the trap of legalism afterward. As those folks did in the church of uh, churches of Galatia, which was not a city, was a region, like Cook County is a region, containing many towns and cities. Galatia was a, a region in central, southern, modern Turkey. If Satan can't keep you out of the kingdom by getting you to be legalistic and religious all your life, if he loses you by you getting saved because you accept Christ by faith, then he'll try to still get you to fall into legalism. Because that'll shut down your walk. That'll bring condemnation into your life. He said to the Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should turn so quickly from the truth, the gospel, the new covenant, and get back into the law. Works to be sanctified and to grow, bear fruit. I can't tell you how many churches today are preaching legalism. When I was recovering from surgery a few a couple years ago, I watched the two-hour debate but two Christians. One was debating that now in Christ the law is done. We're not subject to it anymore. The other, oh no, we're still subject to the law. Got to keep the Sabbath. Got to keep the dietary laws. Well, I, I thought Paul said very clearly in, in, in Galatians 3, what, 19? The law was until Christ. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. I haven't come to destroy the law, but to Fulfill, and now in me it's done. There's a lot of Christians who are being condemned by the devil because they are trying to, they were saved by grace. Paul says, you know, were you saved by grace or by the works of the law? Well, by grace, through your faith. Well, if you're saved by faith, what makes you think you're going to be sanctified by works or the law? The same faith that saved you is the same faith that will sanctify you. As Paul said, the life that I now live, I don't live in my flesh and my strength. I live by believing in the Son of God who lives in me and lives his life through me. Amen? I mean, that's basic Christianity 101. And that's what Jesus was coming against in John 8. These men had embraced Satan's lies that religion and self-effort could save a person and... uh, That is a message that will damn a person to hell for eternity. So we'll pick it up next week, God willing, and uh, continue on. Father, we thank you for your truth. It truly does set us free from the devil's lies. And Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word, 
that our eyes might be opened more and more, that, Lord, our lives will be grounded on truth, not feelings, not traditions, not ceremonies or rituals, but on the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.